A few weeks ago, you may recall, I was sitting on the banks of Loch Ness with Jeremy Leggett, who just sold his solar company and then bought vast regions of Scotland to help save them. Here's his ambition. Highlands Rewilding is a new type of company. It's a mass ownership company, and it's going to do its level best to accelerate nature recovery in the highlands of Scotland so as to contribute to repair of climate meltdown and biodiversity collapse. I'm in the most wonderful garden, which is somewhere between Port Meadow, just outside Oxford, which is one of my favourite places on earth because it's allowed to be wild. and You have all sorts of animals running around and you can go up to them and say hello. And Wytham, and Wytham Wood, which is quite a famous place where natural history is done, is uh, not terribly far away. And with me is Natalie Seddon, who's a professor of... Biodiversity. Biodiversity in Oxford. And what would you call your garden, which is so different and beautiful? It's fairly wild. I've got my own mini rewilding project going on here. <laughs> you've rewilded your house. <laughs> yes, that's the idea. Tremendously fetching because you've got cultivated plants and you've got pots, but also the real world around you, nature. And when you leave here, do you often go to Scotland? Yes, I do, and usually about twice a year. And you go to see Jeremy Leggett and his project? Yes, the Highlands Rewilding Project is an important collaboration for the Nature-Based Solutions Initiative, which I direct, and the Leverhulme Centre for Nature Recovery. So we visit it fairly frequently, either me or members of the wider team here in Oxford. I've been there and I broadcast from there and reported on how he has removed, and this is a paradox, people think, removed many of the plantation trees, which are tall and straight, and needles falling on the ground and wiping out everything underneath so that you can't actually have the native material coming up, and allowing, as a result of that removal of trees, the native plants and such like to come back. And you've watched that change. Well, yes. I mean, it's at the beginning of a long journey. Jeremy's team have taken a number of plantations down. There are more that need managing and removing. And many of them are being removed because they were planted on peat bogs, which are incredibly important stores of greenhouse gases. So there's two issues going on there with the plantations. One is that plantations themselves are extremely low in diversity. So they lack resilience. They lack native species. You know, you go into a monoculture plantation and it's largely devoid of light and life. So that's one reason. And the other reason then is, is the issues around damaging and drying out the peat bogs. And so one of the most important first things that Jeremy and his team have had to do at some of their sites is start taking those trees down. But then doing good things with the wood. The carbon that's in those trees is then locked up in long-term buildings and so on. But the peat bogs, many of them thousands of years old, and when they dry out, the CO2 and the methane especially goes up. And in that sense, it's a disaster. Instead of a sink of carbon, it becomes the reverse. Absolutely, and, and that's a critical problem. You know, with Scotland and the UK is a, a very important place for peat bogs, but many of those peat bogs are drying out and are emitting greenhouse gases. So we have to really look after our peat bogs to ensure that they do their job of storing carbon over the long term, as well as being important habitats for wildlife. Well, of course, Jeremy Leggett is a famous geologist, but he's not necessarily a person who is adept through experience at rewilding and botany and such like. How's he getting on? Are you, in fact, in your team monitoring what he does and perhaps advising him on this rather than that? 
Well, actually, what Jeremy has done, which is incredibly important, is before doing anything in those landscapes, is go for a very long consultation process with the local communities and scientists and NGOs and farmers and others within Scotland to really figure out how and what to do on these landscapes in a way that's sort of ethical, practical, as well as being good for biodiversity and carbon. He did a lot of that. They involved various different companies and organisations to do the baselining books this Oxford collaboration is more around sort of, well, three key components. One is around complementing that natural capital mapping, which he's made huge headway with and has done a tremendous job, but there's still more that can be done. You'll understand that natural capital and biodiversity are quite complex things to measure comprehensively. So some of the work we're doing is really helping build on that, for example, doing LIDAR and multispectral satellite analysis and sort of real cutting edge approaches to capturing what the habitats are, how much carbon they've got in them, and then also the biodiversity. But we've also been working on the social sciences aspect, that community engagement and participation. And then increasingly, we've been brainstorming with the science team there. I mean, Jeremy's got a fantastic team of scientists there already. They already have lots of brilliant ideas. It's a real collaborative effort. And we're focusing now on sort of a more experimental approach. We don't really know in a warming world what the best way to restore a landscape. You know, therefore, you need a bit of experimentation to find out which species, which combinations of species to plant, which density to plant and so forth so that's the sort of work that more experimental work is what we're going to be doing with Jeremy and his team. And what do you mean by natural capital? Well nature can be valued in multiple ways it's most importantly in of itself and when it comes to mobilizing finance and channeling climate finance and biodiversity finance into landscapes it's important to understand how valuable that landscape is in terms of supporting very important what we call ecosystem services you know one of them we've alluded to already which is sequestering and storing carbon but also there's water purification and regulation there's erosion control there's pollination services there's all these sort of really valuable things that the environment provides, that supports the many, many dependencies that humans have on the natural world. You talked about the local people. Any resistance there? I think there's a diversity of views across the three sites. It's really interesting. So there's the three estates that uh, now Highlands Rewilding works within and it's working with communities and farmers and others in all three of them. And they're very, very different diversity of views. And I think at some sites there's like, overwhelming support for what Jeremy and his team are doing. At other sites there are a diversity of views. Some people are welcoming and others are sort of worried that these changes in the landscape are not what they want necessarily. Or in some aspects, you know, you go into a landscape and remove the trees that landscape's going to look fairly messed up for a while. It might take a few years before it starts looking beautiful again. Just a reminder, there are trees you don't want there because they're yes. alien. Yeah, so I'm just referring back to the conversation we just had before about taking down the plantations, the single species, often non-native species plantations that are on the peat bogs. To the untrained eye, they might look all right, <laughs> but the process of taking them down, you need to take machinery in, logging, you know, it's, it's quite an intense thing to do to a landscape. It's very necessary, I would argue. I think the science is there to show that we really do need to do this in these landscapes in order to protect carbon and protect biodiversity and restore the landscape. But the process of doing so is quite disturbing. And I'm so, so local residents that maybe have moved up there to enjoy an undisturbed landscape. There's some resistance around that, I would think. There's a wonderful novel written by a person, a young person, woman in Sydney called Once There Were Wolves. And it's about bringing the wolves back mm. actually in Scotland mm. and the ways in which there's confrontation then people learn what wolves are really like and they're not necessarily part of the legend of the ferocious beast mm. that hunts you down. Mm. 
the thing I did notice there, which is paradoxical, is Jeremy doesn't like the deer coming back because young plants which come up are gobbled very, very quickly when too many deer. <laughs> we have the same sort of situation in the Snowy Mountains mm. with great hordes of brumbies, horses and so on. Yeah. No, it's a critical challenge. I mean, in the absence of wolves, the deer populations are incredibly high and those deer do eat the regenerating trees. And so a big challenge of restoring flourishing landscapes is to control the deer numbers. You do control the deer numbers and you get a more effective regeneration of na- native ecosystems. And so there's real challenges around that. How do you do that? How do you do that ethically and fairly but equally some people associate rewilding with this these more extreme endpoints a, a landscape that doesn't have people in but has wolves in and I think actually that's not what we're talking about here there will be certain parts of Scotland where actually healthy populations of wolves could potentially live in the not so distant future but most of Scotland that's not the case actually mm. this is full of farming communities and people who aren't quite ready for wolves yet and it's a journey we're not going to go from you know highly degraded farmland to flourishing landscapes full of wolves very quickly it's it's a process and actually that might not be the right destination in many parts of Scotland but yeah I mean I think that the sites where Jeremy's working one of the critical challenges is but it is very striking when you do exclude deer those ecosystems do come back quite quickly and actually it's very clear that the soils in many of these areas are still full of potential and it is often just simply and I say that's in inverted commas really because it is not straightforward keeping deers at bay but if you manage those populations and you do get that bounce back. Yes, I was most impressed by the flexibility that Jeremy was saying, negotiating how the sheep farmers can have a few sheep there and we talking about the numbers so that it's under control and there's a kind of agreement going on in that respect. But what you're saying about the richness of the soil without leaping too far, going back to Australia and back into the city... One of the experiments I found extremely interesting being run from Murdoch University in Perth is called the Miyawaki Forest. It can be the size of your garden, in other words, like a tennis court. A very small area in a town, and yet the soil is necessarily degraded because it may have been a car park, neglected. And Gray, that's her name, a senior lecturer in the university is taking primary school kids and showing them how to restore soil because until they've done that it's really uphill is that sort of thing going on in cities around britain at all there's an enormous amount going on in cities around the uk bringing swamps and ponds and and, and natural waterways back into cities and also green roofs and green walls forests into into cities i think there's a lot of that going on (laughs) once we sorted out the transport problem the car problem we can get rid of a lot of that harmful concrete and actually bring nature in and the benefits of bringing nature into cities are huge i mean the mental health benefits alone are extraordinary but then obviously in a, in a warming world where you've got increasing flood risk and heat wave risk those nature-based solutions within cities bring enormous benefits reducing mm. peak temperatures and increasing the absorption of water into the ground to reduce flooding so it's a no-brainer from a climate change adaptation perspective to bring nature in cities whilst it also brings all these mental and physical health benefits the challenge is is doing all that equitably and making sure it doesn't lead to gentrification and you mm. know that this is green space for everyone not just the elite but there are a lot there's many lots of great work going on in Newcastle and Manchester parts of London. This has been huge investments in this and I think with really positive outcomes. So yeah, this is good and globally this needs to happen. Most people, 80% of the global population will be living in cities by the end of the century. It's vitally important that we increase the well-being of the inhabitants of those cities and bringing nature in it is a very clear way of doing that. So What you're doing here, I can see around me, one of the benefits of having a rewilded <laughs> garden and house. 
we saw a, what was it a red kite flying by just then yeah yeah absolutely oh, the, the red kites have done incredibly well in the uk and being reintroduced a few decades ago now and they're very very mm. common to see them around here but they're actually nesting in white and woods which is really exciting but yes we saw yeah often get buzzards going over as well and other birds of prey saw some sparrowhawks this morning so yes very lucky to live here no beautiful spot it certainly is beautiful and treasured natalie seddon at home in oxford where she's professor of biodiversity assisting Dr Jeremy Leggett's rewilding venture around Loch Ness and Aberdeenshire. In next week's Science Show, we shall be in search of bees with Kit Prendergast, both European and lots of native bees. Spring is now here, and over winter, many people get depressed due to a lack of sunlight. It's a thing, humans need sunlight. But I get especially depressed because most native bees as adults are dead over winter the larvae still alive under the ground or in the nests but there's no bees buzzing around and so i can't do what i love best going out in nature and finding bees and today was the first time i got to go out and do an actual bee collection and it was very successful it was just around the corner from where i live a melaleucosm flower and I collected so many native bees of all different species and it just makes me so happy. Dr Kit Prendergast, now in Brisbane, on the Science Show next week, about bees, native and otherwise, saving them from mites and how to get joy from being with them, even dressing up like a bee. We shall also meet more winners of the Prime Minister's Prizes, two teachers and a keeper, not of bees, but lots of fun web spiders. And I shall talk to Anna Maria Arabia about the chances of joining the biggest and richest scientific network in the world, Horizons Europe, and how our Academy of Science became so involved in the Folbig case. One of the things that the Australian Academy of Science does every single day is synthesise evidence and deliver it to decision makers. And I think most people are accustomed to seeing us do that um, and providing independent scientific advice to our government and to our parliament. This is really an extension of that. The inquiry into the case of Kathleen Folbig was the Australian Academy of Science providing independent scientific advice to the justice system. It's simply another forum of decision making. We did enter that debate because one of our wonderful fellow had made some extraordinary scientific breakthroughs that showed evidence to explain the death of some of the Folbig children. And it was the strength of that science that saw the Academy become involved, as I said, as an independent scientific advisor. It was a privilege to be able to play that role for the justice system and a demonstration of how we can create a more scientifically sensitive justice system going forward. There are better ways in which the science and justice system can engage and interact Anna Maria Arabia is CEO of the Australian Academy of Science on the Science Show next week with PM's prize winners and as many bees as we can fit. Meanwhile, don't miss the 2023 series of Boyer Lectures presented by Michelle Simmons, this year's Prime Minister's Prize winner, all about quantum computing and moving single atoms to help you do so. The Science Show is produced by David Fisher. I'm Robin Williams, and this is Carl.
Thank you.